Now, there are different names given to this book. Um, you may have heard of Song of Songs. Have you guys heard of that? Some people call it Song of Songs. I, maybe in the King James it might be mentioned as Song of Songs. Is it right? No, Song of Solomon. Um, but the, the reason behind that is because this is a song. So these eight chapters that we're going to read is a song. Now there's a debate about whether it's one entire song or if it's broken up into little songs. And now I don't think it really matters which one we, we decide or which one we think. It doesn't really change things. But what we do agree upon and everyone agrees upon is that it's a song. And with it being a song, we also find that it's poetry. There's a lot of poetry, and it's, a, it's very descriptive. It's, it's full of uh, descriptive metaphors and comparisons. And one of the things that we're going to find out is as we read this, we've got to read it in a literal sense. Okay, we've got to read it in a literal sense. There's many people or many scholars who would say, no, don't do that, and let's just see it as, you know, uh, a picture and a story of just Christ alone in his church. Now, I agree with that, but I, agree, I think that's more of a secondary thing at this point. I think there is a literal aspect to what is happening here. It is poetry. It is a song. And the way that I've, I've read it is kind of like Shakespeare. If you guys read poetry or Shakespeare or something in high school where there's like different acts, Right? There's a play, and like there's, there's act one, act two, or scene one, scene two. And this is kind of how it is, because it's really choppy. It's really hard. Like It does not flow from beginning to end. It does not have a chronological story where you know, okay, here's this little girl who's always wanted to you know, marry Prince Charming and have the perfect husband and you know, sweep her off, his, off him off her feet, you know, like uh, coming in and, you know, Knight in shining armor. That's, that's, and then, you know, they get married, they fall in love, they get married, they have kids. It's, it's not like the first five minutes of Up, right? Like, the greatest love story ever we see in the beginning of the movie Up. And, and they do a wonderful job of that. And so, you see the beginning of their relationship, right? And then you see the end of their relationship. And then there's just the old man by himself, right? And then we're all, we're all touched, and we're like, our hearts are broken. That's not it. That was really easy to see what transpired throughout their relationship, right? It would be so much easier, I guess, in a sense, if we were able to see it that way as well. Because, I mean, that's how we live. We live chronologically. We go from one year to the next. We go from one moment to the next. We go from one season to the next. And what we see in the Song of Solomon is it's not like that. It's, it's kind of a collection of snapshot, snapshots, okay? You've got parts of uh, their courting, their dating, right? They're getting to know each other. They're, they're falling in love, them being in love, them, their wedding day, being married. And then you get little snapshots of how their marriage is strengthened and how it continues. And so in this book, we're going to see a lot about relationship. We're going to see a lot about love. We're going to see a lot about um, marriage. And I think marriage is a good thing. It is one of the very first things that, if not the very first thing that God instituted in the beginning of time, right? I mean, we look at the, the Genesis account in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and what does God do? God, God creates everything that we see, right? Or the ability of things to make that we now see now, like cars and chairs, right? But that all happened from the very beginning of things that he made initially. And everything he made was good, right? And then he made Adam, right? And he said, that's good. This is good. But he's like, I got something better for Adam. And so when he made Adam, that was good, right? And we see even Paul saying in the New Testament 
that being single is not a bad thing. Do we understand this? Because we live in a day and an age where, especially within church culture, that if you're single, let's say you're like 22 and you're not married yet, you're like, wow, what are you doing with your life? Right? Like, you need to go to Bible college and find a wife. Well, that's, that's, not, that's not what we're called to do. Right? Stop looking at Patrick, guys. <laughs> He's doing it right. But genuinely, listen, that's, that's, not what, that's not our goal. Our goal as humans, married or not married, is not about our spouse or our future spouse. Patrick and I have the same goal. Anthony and I have the same. Me and everyone in this room, we have the same goal, which is to look to Jesus and to glorify him in everything we do. Everything else is secondary. Everything else should glorify him, right? I mean, Jesus says it best himself in the New Testament. He says, look, if, if, if you don't give up your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, and follow after me, well, then you're not a true disciple. He doesn't say it in those terms, but he says, look, and essentially what happens is you're, like, you're thinking, man, like, that Jesus is wacky. Like, doesn't he want us to love our families? Doesn't he want us to respect our moms and our dads and to love our, our spouses and our children? He does. And what we come to find out is when we put Jesus first and we follow him first, well, then I become, for me personally, I become the best father I can be. I become the best husband I can be. I become the best pastor I can be. I can become the best friend that I can be. Because if I try to do things in my own strength and I try to do without Christ, and I think, man, I can just love my, my family without Christ, it's only going to be superficial and it's not going to be super deep and it's not going to be impactful. It's not going to be good. And so he tells us to do that, that it's Christ first. And so again, that goes for anyone, that Christ has to be first in our life. And so he starts with Adam, right? He makes Adam, he says, it's good. And Paul says, man, I wish some of you could be like me. He says, as a matter of fact, he says, being single at certain times is better than being married. Do you know why? It's not because your spouse is nagging you. It's not because you're sick of them. It's not because of anything of them. It's the fact that, again, when we put Christ first, he is our first responsibility, right? He's our first responsibility. And if I put Christ first and I have no other responsibility outside of that, it's so much easier. But when you have a family, Christ tells us, well, they're your second responsibility. And so with that, sometimes I have, I want to say a hindrance, but it can be harder to do ministry. It can be harder to do certain things because my family is my priority at that point. You know, I can't go off doing missions for three months without my family. That wouldn't be being a good father, right? It wouldn't make sense to pour into you guys more than I would my own children, right? How do you think my children would feel if they saw me here at church spending more time with you guys, praying with you guys, and teaching you the word, and then I never did it with them? And there's times where I fall short with that, and it stings. But my first priority is them, right? And I don't want them to ever feel like that. So with that, I have more of a responsibility with them. And because I'm not omnipotent and I can't be everywhere at one point at any time or omniscient, then, you know, I, I can only be at one place. So some of my times with my family, some of my times with ministry. So that's why Paul says that. He says, I wish sometimes some of you could be, be like me. But we also find out that marriage is good. 
right? Marriage is a good thing. Otherwise, God wouldn't have created it. Did you know God didn't create something that was bad? He never created anything that was bad. Everything he created was good and meant to be good. The only reason that something that God created ever turned bad or seems bad is because of what we have done, is we have destroyed it, right? We have destroyed it. So we as humans, we're the ones that brought death into this world. So you've got Adam, and then God makes Eve, right? He makes Eve, and he tells them, look, he, he, he makes this institution of marriage, they, they become one flesh, right? He tells them. I mean, he literally makes them one flesh because he takes the, the rib from Adam, and from that rib makes Eve, like they were the literal same DNA, in a sense, right? Now, for us, it's a little different, but in a spiritual sense, when we get married, when, when I stand before my wife and I make my vows in front of the witnesses at our wedding day, in our ceremony, and I, I say, I, I do this, I do that, I promise, I will, I love you, well, that's when I'm committed and we, we're joined together as one flesh in a spiritual sense. And God says, what, what God brings together, let no man separate, right? Like, it's, our bond is so strong that, that man cannot separate it. Even though we're not bonded physically in a sense, like, you know, we're not sewn together, but in a spiritual sense, we are together. We are one body. We are one flesh. And so he creates this in- institution. He tells Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply. Everyone knows what that means, right? It's not math. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to multiply. I want you to have babies. And what do they do? They have babies. They figure it out. They didn't go to health class, right? They figured it out. They had babies. And we see from them the entirety of the world comes from them. They were obedient to what God said. And from this institution, they were to fill the earth with his glory by what they did with their offspring, right? Here's this God-ordained institution, and through it, they bring about his glory. And what God creates is good. I need us to understand that. Everything that God creates is good. And we as people, we've perverted these things. And so I'm not going to be, I'm, throughout this, this teaching, listen, however long this lasts for these eight chapters, my goal up here is not to, you know, um, hammer things on your head and make you feel guilty. This is not like a purity talk. This is a fine balance of what God has created as good and to see also what man has done to the things that God has created as good and made them evil and wicked, how man has perverted them, right? And I don't want to go to the so far the extreme of the perversion that man has made that we, we've made it, you know, religion, right? That I'm going to do good works to be right with God. We've got to find a fine balance here with that. And so man has perverted, we know, many, many different things. We talked about Sunday. I mean, what brings in the most money in the entirety of the world? Human trafficking, right? It, it's what brings in the most money. The, the temptation of our flesh, the, the sexual desires to fulfill and gratify it, and it goes to a point where it's disgusting, and it's perverted, and it's wicked, and it's evil, and it hurts those who are involved in it, not just those who decide to do it, but those who are taking advantage of it, right? And this goes beyond just human trafficking. We've perverted it in movies. We've seen it in Hollywood, you know, now that social media is so rampant, you guys see things everywhere that what God has created as good is now seen as wicked and perverted. And so we need to have this fine balance of, okay, this is what God intended it for, right? So when we talk about, like, relationships, when we talk about courting or dating, when we talk about marriage, we talk about sex, like, these things are good, 
right? God created these things to be good. There's a, there's a right way to do them. In the confines of how God designed things, it's always good. It's always good, and it's always a blessing. It's always a blessing. So we're going to see a couple things in this. We're going to see the, the love that man has for a woman, that woman has for a man. Like, that's going to be the, the most clearest thing that we're going to see in the entire of this. Like, in the literal sense, that's what we're going to see. But what we're also going to see secondarily is the great love that Christ has for his church. Because remember, all of Scripture points to Jesus, right? So even though this is like poetry and this is a song that is sung between a man and a woman, and then there's kind of like a chorus in the background singing as well and saying certain things, the entirety of it, too, is a picture. The secondary meaning is of Christ loving the church. Because listen, the love that is expressed here, some of the love that is expressed here is from God himself, right? Because how would we know love unless God loved us first, right? True love, biblical love. And I'm not talking about, again, we, we have to like cleanse our minds of what the world has taught us about love. Like, you know, it's not infatuation. It's not love at first sight. Like, oh my gosh, she's so pretty or he's so handsome and he's so charming. Like that's, that's not love. That's, that's, a, that's an emotion. That's a feeling. That's a and that's not a bad thing either, right? To be attracted to someone like that, that's not a bad thing. But we can't define that as love, right? And so we, we need to have a good biblical sense of what true love is, and I think we're going to see that here. And we find it from Jesus Christ himself because we love him because he first loved us. And if John tells us that God is love, then how else would we know what love is unless we know God? Right? So we must know God to know what true love is, and not just the love that we have between us and him, but even amongst each other. So when we read this book, how do we read it? Again, it's poetry. It's a song. It's descriptive of metaphors and comparisons. We're going to read it in a literal sense. The best way to see it is a literal, powerful description of the romantic and sensual love between a man and a woman as we observe them in their courtship and in their marriage. And again, this is not in a chronological order either. But as I told you, there is also a secondary meaning because all of Scripture points to Jesus. And God deliberately uses the marriage relationship as an illustration of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with the church. Right? Jesus is, Jesus is considered, you know, the, the bridegroom. Right? And the church is considered the bride. Right? And, and again, this, there's, a, this, there's a picture Everything lines up. I mean, marriage is always to glorify God because it's a representation of Jesus in the church, right? Jesus in the church. We see that all throughout Scripture, Jesus in the church. And so that's the secondary meaning, and God's deliberate with this. And so as we read this Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, it's going to illustrate this love. And I want, you to, I want to encourage you with this. Like, I think we lack this intensity and this drive and this real love for Christ in the way that we, we do for, like, people. I mean, I'll tell you, like, when, when, I, when Whitney and I were, were courting, dating, however you want to define it, before we got married, getting to know each other, and even now, I mean, like, there's a real intensity, like, there's a love, there's a passion. And I think sometimes with, with Christ, it almost becomes so, like, passive and nonchalant and just dry, and with Christ, like, we have to have this crazy desire and passion for him because he's shown us the greatest love that there is, that he laid down his life for us. 
in a, in a greater sense than somebody dying for you here on earth because they push you out of a moving train. Like, no, he took upon your sin. He died as the perfect spotless lamb. And so there has to be this, you know, and I think maybe it's not a matter of, you know, summing it up and like, and like building up within you to have this passion and this intensity for Christ. I think really you need to just pray. Like, ask the Lord to give me that passion, that desire for you, right? That you're not just this dry Christian going about and like, okay, yeah, Jesus is God. Like, that's, that's not how he wants us. There, there has to be this intensity between us. And so we got that secondary meaning here. Now, the characters, sorry, I've got a lot of review to get into this. The characters in this story, in this song, there's three of them. There's three main speakers or singers, however you want to say it, three main characters. There's the young maiden, who's often going to be called the Shulamite. It's because she's from Shulaman, okay? She's the Shulamite. There's the young man, okay? These are the two, the young maiden, the Shulamite, and the young man. We're going to see them in love, falling in love, being married, and getting married, okay? And the young man is often described as or given the name of either Solomon, the beloved, the king, the shepherd. And some people would say that those are different characters, but I think as you read it, you come to find out that they're all the same. And some would say, okay, this isn't really Solomon being Solomon and that it's actually someone else. Because I think this, listen, it's very interesting because I believe that Solomon is the author of this. But as you read of Solomon's life, how many wives did he have? Okay, wait, how many concubines did he have? You're throwing out way too many numbers. Now I can't even remember correctly. One was 600 and one was 300. I forget. Anyways, he had a lot of women in his life. So as, as, as we like understand that and know that, you're like, okay, uh, is Solomon the greatest person to give you know, advice and write a song about love and you know, romance and, and <laughs> marriage? Right? Am I the only one that thinks that? He had 900 wives slash concubines, right? Yeah, if you add them up. I mean, that's, that's crazy. That's ridiculous. But I think what we come to find out is that we know that Solomon was wise, and Solomon was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And people learn, and people make mistakes. And I believe that he wrote this near the end of his life after he had his mistakes, and now he's been given this godly wisdom. Because God can give wisdom to people even though they may have been hypocritical in their, in their own life. Now, that's not to call us to be hypocritical, but we do see that God gives wisdom, and through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has been able to, to write this book and to give us biblical insight to what love is. And we know that love is not between one man and 900 wives, but it's between one man and one woman, right? That is what God has, has intended, and that's what he's given us. We see that all the way back from the very first relationship with Adam and Eve. So those are the first two characters, the young maiden, the Shulamite, and the young man, the beloved, the king, or the shepherd, or even Solomon. And then you have the chorus, and the chorus is the daughters of Jerusalem. So we have those three main characters, along with a few minor characters, but we'll get to those in a little while. And so we have to remember, too, again, that this is a song. It's the Song of Songs, as we see in verse 1, which is Solomon's. So as we study this, since it's a song, we're not going to be given a detailed narrative regarding romance. It's not going to be chronological, right? But there's going to be flashbacks. There's going to be little nuggets here and, here, here and there. There's going to be flash shots and, you know, um, little events that are happening 
as they were dating and after they were married. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 8, and let's try to get through a couple verses. So Song of Solomon, verse 1, chapter 1, it says, The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And then in the banquet, the Shulamite. This is the Shulamite speaking, singing, the young woman, the young maiden. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. Draw me away. And then this is where we get the chorus with the daughters Jerusalem. They say, we will run after you. And the Shulamite says, the king has brought me into his chambers. And the daughters of Jerusalem, they sing again. They say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. And the Shulamite says in verse 4 at the end, Rightly do they love you. I am dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They have made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And as she sings to her beloved, Tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? And the beloved sings in verse 8, If you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. And you're like, what is happening here? It's very romantic. It's, 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 we see the love building up. We see the expression of their love between the Shulamite and between uh, the beloved. And here in verse 1, the book identifies the writer as song of, uh, that it's Solomon's, right? The song of songs, which is Solomon. But what this really means when it says song of songs, it's like saying like the holy of holies, the king of kings, the lord of lords. The song of song means it's the greatest of the songs. That there's many songs, but this is the greatest. Well, what songs are there? Well, think about it. Solomon also wrote Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes, right? Tons of wisdom in there, mixed with a little bit of poetry. But here, in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, it says that he wrote 1,005 songs, right? 1,005 songs. Well, what does that say? Well, that's very descriptive. That's, that's, too, like, that's detailed. Like, exactly 1,005 songs, and this was his favorite, or the best. It was the greatest of all the songs. Imagine writing like 1,000 songs. I mean, that's amazing. And we don't get all of them. We don't have all of them because they weren't designed to be in the canon of Scripture. They weren't designed to, to be there. We, we have the whole counsel of God, and there's a reason why we have the eight chapters of this greatest song. It's his greatest hit. It's the number one hit. And not only did he write over 1,000 songs, but he wrote 3,000 proverbs. That's what 1 Kings 4.32 says. So Solomon spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And again, if you count the, the, the proverbs that are in the book of Proverbs, and if you even included the book of Ecclesiastes, you come up with a lot less than 3,000. So we didn't even get all of the proverbs. And so Solomon here, there's two things about those that, that, that we do have, okay, in regards to the songs and the proverbs that are in the, in the Bible. One, we have the best of what he wrote and Song of Solomon being the best of them all. And second, again, it is what God has inspired, and it's what he wants us to have. Okay, It's no different than we see 
in the New Testament when it talks about, you know, if, if everything had been written about what Jesus had done, all the books could not hold, hold the stories, right? I mean, there's so much more of what Jesus did in his time and his life, but we don't have the accounts of it because we don't need it. We have everything we need from Genesis to Revelation. So the same thing goes with these Proverbs in these songs. And now there are four different and important meanings found in this book. I gave you two basic ones at the beginning. But the Song of Solomon sets the glory of wedded love, right, that is found within a marriage, that is sacred within the marital relationship, right, that God has instituted. Now listen, marriage is not something that was designed by man. It was not something that was designed by the government. It was not anything that someone voted upon. It was given and designed and created by God in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve when they became one flesh. In this book, it shows us what real love is. It shows us what real love is. And oftentimes the Jews, they taught that it reveals the heart of a satisfied husband and a devoted wife. And again, I think one of the perversions that we have with love and that we have with marriage within this world is that being married to one person for the rest of your life is not good enough. You'll never be satisfied. We live in a time where it's all about freedom when it comes to your sexuality, when it comes to your relationships, when it comes to who you're with and who, you're, who you hang around with, right? I remember one time, this was maybe like two years into being in youth ministry, and we were hanging out with a couple boys, and they asked me, and they're like, I forget how they phrased it, but basically they, they were so, con- so confused or they couldn't understand how being with, with one woman for the rest of my life could be satisfying. They couldn't understand it. They're like, well, you didn't want to like go date other people? And I was like, no. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to say what I said to them, but because I'm talking to guys. But God designed it between one man and one woman. And when done biblically, God gives you a love and a desire and a passion for that woman and for that man new every single day. I heard a great quote one time, and I, I can't quote it verbatim, but basically it's like, I, I wake up to a different woman every day. And the sense of my wife grows every single day. She's not the same woman she was when I, when I married her. She's better Every single day. Because she grows in the Lord. She grows in her talents and her gifts and her beauty. Right? That, that's how we see it. That's how God gives it to us. So it's not, it's not a drag. It's not a nag. God never, again, designed marriage to be that way. It's not supposed to be dry and not intimate. There should be, there should be love. There should be passion. There should be zeal. And we should see our spouse in a different light every day because they're growing in the Lord. And so, again, it goes completely against what the world says and just do what you want. Try what you want. And what we come to find out is there's consequences. And those consequences that we want to fulfill, the desires of our flesh, those, those things that come with it, you've got to bring them into your next relationships. And then you've got to deal with them there. And God can always redeem. God can always restore. And God can always bring forgiveness, of course but it doesn't come without its hurts and its pains and its downfalls. And so there is, again, this design for a devoted wife and a satisfied husband, both of them being devoted and both of them being 
satisfied. Because again, this generation has, has been told in ways that doesn't know about love in the way that God has created it. We only know the love that the Hollywood version has given us. And they think they know what love is, but they don't. And the second important meaning that we see in this Bible, or in this, in this section of Scripture in Song of Solomon, is that it shows the, the love that Jehovah has for Israel specifically. For Israel. The third point is that we see the picture of the love that Christ has for his church, which includes not just Israel, but Gentiles. It includes everyone. And then the fourth thing is that we see the love that Christ has and the communion that he has with the individual believer, right? Yes, the church is made up of, of a multitude of people, but there's also us as individuals. And so we see the depiction of the communion that Christ has between him and the, the believer, the love that he has for each and, uh, one of us. Just as Paul could say in Galatians 2.20, which is in the back of our awesome new youth shirts that you can get on Sunday morning between services at the bookstore. That was a sick plug. Galatians 2.20, the son of God who loved me gave himself for me. That's what Paul could say. That's why John could say, like, he dubbed himself the disciple that Jesus loved. Don't you think he loved other, other disciples? Of course. They knew it. They felt it. But there's such this intimacy and this personalness that I can say that God loves me, even though I know he loves you too, and he loves us all equally. But it's not like he gives me 1% and you 1%, and it's equal in that sense. No, he, he loves equally. Like, I get 100% of his love and his affection. And so do you. And so there's this personal relationship that we have with Jesus Christ, and it's wonderful. It's glorious. And again, the only reason that I love him is because he has first loved me, and he's shown it to me. And so in these first eight verses, what we see, there's two mentions of two characteristics of attractiveness that can be found in every Christian, male or female. And we see this between the Shulamite, and we see this between the beloved, that they have a physical attraction towards one another. Is that a bad thing? No. no, not at all. Not at all. I want you, well, I don't want you to, but I mean, I think it's good and it's healthy that in the future, when you get married, that you're attracted to your spouse physically, right? I don't, <laughs> would you be like, oh my, like, babe, you have the greatest personality, but you're not that great looking. No, like that would never fly. That's not going to happen. God's going to give you a desire physically. Is that the most important thing? No, it's not, right? And we know that through Scripture because Christ himself doesn't even look at the physical appearance. And it's not that the physical appearance has no meaning and no value to it, but what we find out is there's always a more importance, right? It's just like when he came to die for us and he's living a physical life, like he healed people. That was a good thing, but that wasn't the most important thing. The most important thing was to save them from their sin in the spiritual sense. And so in the same sense, when it comes to this physical attraction that is outward, there's also a spiritual attraction that's inward. What's also important is understanding that, okay, my future spouse, and, this, and listen, these biblical principles go beyond just a spouse. It goes even with relationships, friends, people you decide to hang around, right? It's not just I'm going to hang out with the, the good-looking crowd, no, I'm going to hang out with people that have the same moral standards as me, the same integrity, the same character, right? Because those are what are va what's valuable. That's what's valuable. 
And so first, there's always this physical attraction, because that's what we see first. And again, it's not a bad thing, but we're not moved on that. That shouldn't be what drives us. That shouldn't be the foundation of any, any relationship, but rather it should be the spiritual attraction. And so what we see here is that the, the Shulamite woman, the young maiden, is that she looks upon this man, this young man, and she sees the outward appearance, and vice versa. But what's more important, what they say after this is the spiritual, it's, it's the inward, it's the character that he has. It's the character that she has. And so we see the love. And as we look at the love that we see throughout this book, there's three types of love. There's the agape love, right, which is, comes from God. It's the, the steadfast commitment of the will toward the well of, well-being of one another. It's basically the most unselfish love with not wanting or desiring anything in return. Then you get the filial love, which is a brotherly love, like a friendship love that you'd find between friends. Right? It's a big, big difference than you know, what I have with my wife and what I have with Patrick. And then you've got the eros love, which is the erotic love. It's the sensual love. And this is not a bad love. Right? I think you know, in the church culture, sometimes we might say, no, like, we don't teach that. That's a bad thing. But no, again, in the confines of the way that God has created this, it's good. And the confines of this eros love is always between one man and one woman in the institution of marriage. And God makes it good. God makes it, makes it well. And so we're going to see examples um, of dating and other relationships. And within those concepts, it's important that we decide, again, who we are to be around. It's important who we who we date or we intend to marry, I think it's always important that whoever, look, I'm just going to plug this in here. This is my own opinion. Take this for what you want. I think sometimes you guys are way too young to start dating. I think you guys don't understand. And I get it. I get that you have an attraction. But man, just, can I encourage you with this? Be friends first. Just be friends. Woody and I, we're the best of friends and we're still the best of friends. And, and always this, too. If you ever date, it should always be with the intention to marry. And now that's not to say that just because you date that you have to get married. That's not what I'm saying. But there should be an, an intention. That we shouldn't be just, we shouldn't be foolish. We should be intentional. And so um, it's important, again, who we decide, being intentional and who we decide not just to date or to be around, but again, the, the friendships that we have, that's really important because more important than the looks or the skills or the personality or the popularity, whatever you want to put out there, but it's actually the character of those with whom we associate. So we asked this really old lady today. She was like 99 years old. I don't know. I said lady. Well, I didn't say lady. I said her name. I said, G give me like one life advice. And she wasn't a believer. I was like, give me one life advice. Like you've lived a really long time Tell me, like, something. Here's these young kids. What would you tell them? And you know what she said? She said, be careful with who you hang out with. I was like, wow, you, like, God gave you some wisdom. Do you know how important that is? Do you know that a majority of kids that go astray or get into trouble, that it's a, a matter of who you are around and who you hang out with? Because it influences you, it changes you, and not for the better. It's never for the better, really, if you're in a crowd of people who are, um, have low, low character, low values, a lack of morality. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 says this, do not be deceived, okay, because you can be easily deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits or good morals. That's a biblical truth. And you know this. You know this, that you are swayed and that you are changed with the certain people that you hang out with that, are, that have these low values and these low, char- low character and low, low morality. So it's important. And not only is it important that, that you choose who you hang around, but it's important that who you decide to be as a friend yourself, that you be somebody with an upstanding you know, morality and character and values. Proverbs 16, 28 says, A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer, or gossip, separates the best of friends. Man, if you've got a friend that, that's way, that you know, is, is perverse, that doesn't know the Lord... I mean, it says that he, will, he or she will sow strife, that gossip will separate the best of friends. Proverbs 12, 26 says the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Again, this is the smartest man to ever live. This is Solomon. He was given wisdom. He's written these Proverbs for a reason. Again, the righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them, lead, leads them astray. You need to be careful in who you choose your friends to be, and then you need to be careful about what kind of friend that you are. That you are not the one who is wicked and leads them astray. And so the Shulamite here, she refers to the young man's outward appearance. She finds him appealing, right? But again, what's most appealing to her is his character, because that's the most important thing to her. And so in verse 2, she says, Let him kiss me, with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And so we see the passionate desire that she has for this man, right? She wants to receive and experience the love of her beloved. Watchman Nee says this. He says, no one can kiss two persons at the same time. So this is a matter of personal significance. Moreover, this is a kind of kiss. It's not like the one that Judas Iscariot gave on the cheek, nor is it a kiss upon the feet like that of Mary, but is the kisses of his mouth, which would express a most personal and intimate love. And again, we're in a time and generation where it's like, just go kiss anyone. And we're not intentional, right? Like, like as Nacho Libre says, like, we're, it's, you're flusy, right? Like, and, and again, it's not a matter of like, okay, let's go to the far extreme and be so religious that, like, I don't know how to say this, but, but ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. Don't, don't give yourself away when it's not needed, when it's not the right time. And I'm not, I'm not talking about the deep things. I'm even talking about simple things. Like, even be intentional with, like, hand-holding. Be intentional with, again, even just something as so simple as, who do I spend my time with? Right? Who do I spend my time with? And so this is, because kissing is so intimate and it's so personal. And so what she says is she doesn't, she doesn't command it, but she asks of it. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Right? She's not weak. She's not passive. Because I think a lot of people think when it, in Christianity, when it comes to the wife, it comes to the woman, whether in a relationship or not, that they're weak, that they're passive. But what we find out from experience and what we find out from Scripture is that women are not to be weak and not to be passive, nor are the men. That Christians aren't, you know, little weenies. No, we're strong. We're courageous, right? 
So she's not weak, but she, and she's not passive, but what we see is that she respects this man to be a leader. And so she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. And so she's a strong woman, but she lets him lead. And that's important because God designed in a relationship for the man to lead the woman because the man first is being led by Christ, who's the head of it all. That's so important. She says, for your love is better than wine, right? Both are intoxicating, but she says one is better. And why is it better? Because this, this one that is better has no cons to it. Wine does. Yeah, maybe there's a slight goodness to it. There's slight pros to it, but there's, there's so much more that comes with it that's bad. So here we see an expression of comparisons. And Charles Spurgeon, he even uh, spoke on this a lot, and he equated this back to Christ and the love that he has for us. And he gave a lot of comparisons as to why Christ's love is better than wine, because of what it's not. And so he says it's totally safe, and it may be taken without question. You can't take too much of Christ's love. Well, wine, yeah, you can. It doesn't cost anything. Christ's love is free, right? John 3, 16, for God, oh oh my gosh, I'm blanking. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? He gave it freely as a gift. Faith is given. Salvation is given as his free gift. It doesn't cost us anything. Taking more of it does not diminish the taste of it, right? God becomes more pleasing over time. It's totally without impurities. It will never turn sour, and it produces no ill effects. Your love is better than wine. She says in verse 3, Because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment poured forth. Therefore, the virgins love you. So here she's expressing, again, just this first part of these outward appearance. And she says, Because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Guys, listen. Just some, some friendly advice from one man to another. Wear deodorant. Like, bring deodorant with you. Put it on a couple of times a day. Like, if I smell it, I know the girls smell it, and that, that they don't like that. I, I promise you, no girl's like, oh, yeah, that's like B.O., that's it. That's what I like. No. And there may be one out there, and she's for you. I don't know. <laughs> but in this time, they didn't take regular baths like us, like, or we don't take baths, but like showers. You know, like we shower probably daily or every other day. They didn't do that. So what they did is they would pour, pour oils upon them. And it would remove any type of odors. It's almost like, you know, you smell good. This, this cologne, this fragrance upon you, it smells good. But she says this as she continues that theme of this fragrance and this ointment. She says, your name is ointment poured forth. Your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. What does that mean? That means, you know, the, the ointment is, is good. It smells good. But then she equates it to his name, which which is talking about his reputation, right? Like when your name comes up in conversation, what do people automatically think about you, right? Oh, well, that's the funny guy. Oh, that's the guy that loves Jesus. Oh, that's the guy that, you know, like, he's always mean. Well, what's your reputation, right? Is it good? And she says that his reputation, his name is ointment poured forth. It is a good reputation and not just amongst what she knows, but what everyone knows. And that's why she says, therefore, the virgins love you. And this is speaking of other women, other people who have seen his character, and they agree that he is upstanding and that he is good. And she, she takes that into consideration. 
And I think it's important that we take that into consideration. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Who cares if the guy's rich and powerful and funny? No, he has to have a good reputation, a good name. Proverbs said that's, that's better. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. A good name is better than precious ointment. And so the Shulamite says the virgins, they love you. Again, what she, she knows that and she understands is that they could see his good character as well, right? And they weren't romantically attracted to him. No, they were just friends. They saw things from the outside. And I think sometimes when we get so caught up in our feelings, we have tunnel vision and we don't see things rightly. And then people will come up to you and say, hey, I don't think that relationship's good. And you're like, no, you, like, forget you. You don't understand. And then like six other people say it to you. That, that, that might mean something. That might mean that you, you can't see something because you have this tunnel vision. And so the, the virgins, they, they recognize, again, without being romantically attracted to him, that they see his good qualities, his character, his values, his morality. Right? These wise women, these wise women see this man of character. And it's important that she recognizes that. Again, that we don't be that we're not caught and drawn away by our feelings and our emotions. And again, there's nothing bad with feelings and emotions. But when they become what leads us and what drives us, we become blind. We have that tunnel vision. We have to be stable. We have to have correct biblical discernment. I want to encourage you with this. And this is what I taught at our marriage conference this past year. I told people, I said, look, in a marriage, because I think sometimes we as teachers, we always talk about Feelings are bad. Don't ever trust your feelings, right? There's truth, and that truth is without feelings. And, and in a sense, that's true. There is truth without feelings. There is this truth that should not be founded upon feelings because our feelings are in our emotions. They, they can lead us astray. But once I have that foundation of truth, God brings feelings and emotions that a relationship between a man and a woman in a marriage should not be stagnant. It should not be dry. There should be feelings and there should be emotions. But again, they're based upon what is truth, what is righteousness, what is good. And so there should be this stable and correct biblical discernment that we must have. And God will bring about feelings and emotions in these things, in these relationships. And so what kind of character is to be valued? Well, Proverbs 2, verses 6 through 8 says this. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the path of justice and watching over the way of his saints. God will give you wisdom. He will give you knowledge and understanding. Not just for relationships, but everything in life. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. And Proverbs 12.4 says this, a wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. Character is so vital, and it's so important, and that's why it's so valued within relationships. And so at the end of verse 4, and we'll close here, the Shulamite responds and says, rightly, or I'm sorry, no, in the beginning of verse 4, he says, draw me away. Draw me away. So we've already seen how much she loves 
this young man, if we want to call him Solomon, right? She's not interested in just a fling. She wants to be drawn to him. She wants his affection. She wants romance. She wants interest, right? She's waiting for him to take initiative, right? Because he is the lead. He is the head. But she's not weak. She is strong, right? She wants to be joined to him. She wants to experience life with him, that it's more than just this physical attraction that she has. She wants to know him. She wants to know him. And as you get to know somebody, romance can follow. It will be natural. It will happen. Marriage can follow. And Christ has told us that none come to him but such as the Father draws. Right? We are drawn to Christ because of God, because of the Holy Spirit. Right? We are drawn. Psalms uh, 110, verse 3, it says, Draw me, else I move not. Overpower the world and the flesh that would draw me from thee. We are driven to Christ. And she says, draw me to you. And so we see the, the similarities here between us as Christians when it comes to the love that Christ has for us and, and we for him as she has for the young man. So she says, draw me away. The daughters of Jerusalem says, we will run after you. The Shulamite responds and says, the king has brought me into his chambers. The daughters say, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember you, remember your love more than wine. And the Shulamite responds, rightly do they love you. And we'll end there tonight, but what I'm going to pick up, not next week because we're out of we're out, but the week after is picking up in middle of verse four, because there's a lot that's going to continue to happen in these next four verses that we need to we need to figure out. We need to talk about.